With sports car racing news and analysis from around the globe, this is the Double Stint Podcast. Here's Ryan Marine. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Double Stint, Sports Car 365's weekly sports car racing podcast. In Malmody, Belgium, I'm Ryan Marine, joined on this week's edition of the podcast by Dan Lloyd and Jake Kilshaw, who were part of uh, the Sports Car 365 coverage team for the total 24 hours of Spa. Dan actually was at the uh, preseason test, the prologue for the WEC in Barcelona just before that. So we'll talk to Dan about uh, his experiences there before arriving in Belgium a little bit later in the show. Plenty of Spa coverage to discuss, a lot of news as well coming out of Spa with the annual SRO press conference. We had some schedules, we had some announcements. And uh, that leaves us with quite a few discussion points in our news section of the show. We'll chat with uh, maybe the hero of the race, Kevin Estra, who turned in an excellent opening stint and final stint in the race-winning GPX racing Porsche 911 GT3R. Plenty to cover with him a little bit later. And I'll close up by looking at listener questions as well as previewing the upcoming race weekend, which we'll see IMSA back in action headed up to Road America. So let's start with the 24 hours of spa, guys. It was wet. I think it's safe to say the race started under safety car conditions because of heavy rain, which we really hadn't seen much of in the buildup to the race. In fact, it had been the heat that was the big storyline. It was Thursday, I believe, that was the hottest day in Belgian history, at least in recorded Belgian history, which is pretty remarkable. It cooled off significantly by race day, and we saw rain basically throughout the course of the event. We lost nearly six hours of running due to a lengthy red flag, and yet this race felt like it was a memorable one in a lot of respects, uh, especially the final few stints as the strategy kind of came around. We had some late race uh, coming together, I suppose, and and uh, it, it led to a fun race, although Porsche appeared to be the dominant platform in the race. Uh, we'll start with you, Dan, your impressions of the race and, and ultimately the, the end result. Yeah, it was, it was a, a redemptive victory for Porsche, really, after what happened at the Nürburgring 24 hours. Uh, interestingly, the, the first sort of major endurance crown for that uh, new Porsche 911 GT3R chassis um and and throughout the race they were just so strong not just in terms of pace but also reliability and you look at the timing screen when the race restarted after that red flag with about five hours to go it was you had porsches multiple porsches in the top 10 and top 20 and and they they'd all managed to stay there other manufacturers hadn't had that kind of uh, luck and durability over the course of the race it was it was a real test of staying power and it was a real testament to the the, the amount of force that Porsche threw at this race they they put so many high profile entries out there through their customer teams factory drivers left right and center and as you as you said the the winning lineup with Estra Christensen and Leitz that that's you know the the cream of the crop in the Porsche factory driver pool and and it that that sort of attitude towards the race really did pay off for the team in the end but yeah we saw some great racing and and uh, several manufacturers up there but really Porsche was the one that stood out for me uh, Mercedes that pretty much uh, 
the flagship entry for that was the number four Black Falcon entry. I think they were unlucky not to come out with with a win here. Um, they they had a great run. Mauro Engel, Yelma Berman, and Lucas Stoltz barely put a foot wrong. Um, but yeah, it was the GPX team that, that seemed to get it right on strategy, and they had the pace at the end and at the moments when it counted, especially with Esther at the wheel to take that win. Pretty remarkable, I think, when you consider the fact that this is a team that is new to Porsches. It is new to Blancpain GT racing. They've been running an entry sure this year in, in Blancpain Endurance Cup, but it's been a Silver Cup entry. So three new drivers, new engineer, drivers that did not have much experience with the GT3R, this new generation of the GT3R, and, uh, and a team that doesn't have a lot of experience in this race, which has a very particular rule set. So all of that together, despite the strength of the driver lineup, I don't know if we looked at this car coming into the weekend as a clear favorite. I think it was one we looked at as a contender. But from the word go, Jake, this was probably the car that we had our eyes on because that opening stint from Estra, he was flying through the field, looked really, really strong. They did have the setback with a penalty uh, somewhere around 8 o'clock at night, I believe, on Saturday, but were able to recover. I thought that was fascinating. Yeah, definitely. And I think the the answer and the, the key to the race for that team was the driver's pace, especially, as you say, Kevin Estra. The Porsches in general were very quick in the, in the conditions that we had for much of the race. Um, and when they were able to put slick tyres on, on the drying track, on a damp track, that was what a lot of other drivers have said was their sort of their sort of um their party trick almost in these conditions so porsches in general were very were very fast for the whole race and sort of the strongest uh, brand by far but that particular lineup i think as you said dan is is a very experienced one and although the team on paper isn't isn't the most experienced isn't the one that we would have really looked at before uh, before the weekend um i think it was purely down to the driving talent that sort of put that one ahead of the the more obvious porsches I did think that Kevin, and you'll hear it in our interview, had an interesting point on how they recovered. A talking point from throughout the week from just about every driver that we spoke to was with the rules that the SRO uses, it's so difficult if you make a mistake to get that deficit back. Uh, you don't have wave arounds if you lose a lap. You don't have um, the, the opportunities to, to play strategy in quite the same ways because of the pit stop regulations. And so when this team was hit with the penalty, it was too many crew members working on the car, I believe, uh, at, at around 8 o'clock on Saturday night that, that put them behind. You kind of looked at that and thought, all right, they might be done already because that's what the storyline was. That's what the drivers were telling us before the week. But um, And I think you, you wrote the story with Kevin's reaction, Jake. They were able to play the little bit of strategy that is available to them, which is to say – manipulating the cautions, doing the service that they needed to do by rule, but doing it under the best possible circumstances, and that meant reacting on the fly. Yeah, as you'll hear from Kevin later, um, basically he, he took a really quick decision to make the pit stop uh, for the this five-minute technical stop. Every cast made one five-minute mandatory pit stop at some point during the race, um, and they, they reacted instantly did their stop um, at that moment, and it, it really helped them later because you've got other cars, other cars at the front of a field that had no choice but to actually make the stop during green in, in some cases, and you'd lose obviously a lot more track position by doing that. Um, 
as, as you guys have said, you know, the, the opportunity for unique strategies at Spa is very small. The, this five minute stop, while it maybe seems like a bit of a strange rule, it does allow for a fairly interesting strategy play. Um, and it's interesting to see cars going up and down the order for a couple of cars that made their technical stops very late in the race and they were at the top of the field. The Volkanos BMW and the dynamic Porsche, they were one, two for a while. But that was purely because of when they timed their stops. So it's quite interesting seeing how how different teams choose and who can actually uh, benefit from sort of getting lucky, as it were, with with strategy on this case. And, and the thing with the technical stops is teams going in 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 for those longer services. It gives them an opportunity to maybe play with the car a little bit and and change a few things around. I, as far as I'm aware, they're not really limited too limited as to what they can do in those stops so you know you can come out with a bit of a different setup and especially with the changeable conditions we had during the race that might have favored some teams uh, over others in in the long run um the rain was certainly the big the big headline i think and obviously that red flag was a was a a fairly substantial part of the race and we we only had uh, about a three quarters of the race to be run although not all of that was under green flag conditions anyway um but uh, just wondering what you guys thought about the the stoppage was it called at the right time and and was it the right decision to delay it until eleven thirty um in the morning on sunday uh, before we got things going again for a final five hour sprint to the flag as it were I think the restart was probably called at the right time. I think before 11.30 or, or whenever, the conditions probably weren't right for, for restarting the race. But I think, and a lot of the drivers and, and team and teams agree with this, it should have come out, the red flag should have come out quite a lot earlier. Um, a lot of drivers post-race were saying there's not really any point in in red flagging it at almost 6, 6 a.m. because the issue was that the rain was making it difficult to drive at night so if you're if you're going to red flag it when the sun rises you you you've you ran the entire night with cars on track which was the most difficult part it probably would have made more sense to a red flag a couple of hours earlier um a lot of the drivers put stuff on twitter kevin Esther included put something on twitter saying it was some of the worst conditions he's ever seen um not really sure what anyone's benefiting from keeping cars running under full course yellow or safety car in those, in those cases so yeah i think a, a longer red flag to be honest probably would have made more sense but i think the fact that we had a lengthy red flag in general was was a good thing actually because it, it was it, it was a much better strategy i think than having trying to run the race in the uh, in the morning um in the early daylight with the likelihood for accidents and then we just go end up going under safety car again and it stop start stop start nobody benefits from that and i think people benefited more from being able to you know sit back regroup get a bit of sleep chill and uh, we we use the opportunity as well i'm sure um and and just sort of calm down a bit and get ready for the for the go ahead when the conditions are right and and as a result of that long stoppage i think the racing that we had going from going for the final five hours to the to the checkered flag was brilliant racing and and that was probably part of that was probably the uh engendered by the by the length of the red flag and and the time that uh, the organizers took to set the field get things right and then move on from there i think that was quite a good decision i'm in agreement with with both of you i do think that the the, the red flag could have come earlier I can't say definitively, but I would speculate that it might have had something to do with the fact that we were close to halfway in the race and points were paid at halfway. And from a series perspective, maybe you want to at least have cars circulating when those points are paid. 
uh, considering what drivers were, were talking about it, we saw this. We saw drivers spinning under full course yellow or, or safety car conditions um, because the, the conditions were that bad. Maybe it's it's not worth holding out uh, like they did. But nevertheless, we, we got through that point, And I do think the idea to ultimately say, OK, we're going to take a few hours here. We'll reassess at 1130 and try and get going again. That that. That was good for a lot of different reasons. It was great for the crews because as I was down on pit lane for the TV broadcast, I know that up until that point, the crews would sleep for about 10 minutes, wake up and see if there was an update, go back to sleep for 10 minutes. And that's really not ideal. So to give them a, a real rest, a real chance to reset, there's a benefit to that. And I'm in agreement as well that it did lead to uh, some very good racing when we did restart yeah it did and uh, but interestingly i was talking to nico miller afterwards he was in the number one wrt audi pretty much the lead audi throughout the race and he said well you know we, we would have actually preferred the red flag to have been lifted earlier because the audis were so good in the wet so it didn't play out for everyone but i think as you said ryan in the general course of the race it was a sensible thing to do uh, and the race benefited as a result of it in my opinion so a couple of thoughts here. This was the first win for Porsche at this race overall since 2010. And I think Dan mentioned it earlier that Porsche seemed really committed to winning this race. Maybe it had something to do with what happened at the Nürburgring. I believe it had a lot to do with the fact that Porsche has reevaluated its customer racing to a large degree. They, they were the pioneers in a lot of respects of customer racing, but the landscape has changed around them. And while, yes, we GT3 is customer racing, we, we do see some pretty heavy factory involvements from the likes of Audi and Lamborghini, Mercedes, and the list is quite lengthy, where in the past, Porsche stayed a bit more hands-off. It was more truly customer support than it was you know, half-and-half half customer uh, and factory input like we see from, from some other manufacturers. And, and they, they do seem to have changed their tone a little bit this year. I think the GPX car is the prime example, making sure they have three factory aces in this race car to have a really good chance to go for a win. Um, clearly, they were loaded for bear, and it was a big win for them, one that they that they put a lot of emphasis on without a doubt. The other thing is this continues the streak of German manufacturers winning overall that also dates to 2010. I think Chevrolet was the last non-German manufacturer to win overall, and that was in 2009. So a couple of interesting thoughts there. We'll get you your final thoughts on Spa this year. Any other performances that stood out or, or just general impressions of the race weekend? We'll start with Jake. We mentioned it earlier, but I think the, the weather and the progression of the weather throughout the weekend is probably a really interesting storyline. As, as you said, Ryan, you know, the, the record heat that we had Wednesday, Thursday and a, a bit on, on Friday as well um, made it very interesting in the practice and qualifying sessions. Um, but no one was able to prepare for wet weather running. And I think that's a lot of the reason why we didn't see a pre-race BOP change, because we didn't really know how the weather was going to affect the cars. We knew that different cars were obviously going to be stronger in different conditions. We kind of all expected the Porsches would be um, up there, so were the Audis in, in the rain, um, whereas they weren't doing, the Audis especially weren't doing that well in the dry conditions earlier in the weekend. Um, so it's, it's, it's interesting that um, just to see really the dynamic of the weekend and 
um, the, the, the extremes that we had and what that meant for sort of the on-track product that we received. You know, just sort of expanding on your earlier point, Ryan, about Porsche's throwing entries into this race, I think it's really going to make a lot of the other manufacturers sit up and, and pay attention and, and possibly get a little bit annoyed at, at Porsche uh, for for putting so much into this race and then ultimately getting the, the win and, and the one-two as a result. Um, you know, we, we, we saw some pretty pretty factory laden efforts here but not all of them did well i mean bentley had a nightmare race the the four continental gt3s in the pro class meant to be a celebration of the centenary of the of the brand but that that really was a a a forgettable experience for the for the british team um bmw as well only had two pro class cars and it wasn't it didn't really seem like a proper full-hearted presence from from bmw we had the valkenhorst car that won last year and we had schnitzer as well with with a, a stellar driver lineup but it just didn't seem like they didn't they had the uh, the firepower that perhaps uh, porsche and audi had, had brought to the race so yeah it's interesting it'll be interesting to see um how porsche's attitude to changing attitude towards gt3 racing will impact how the other teams go gt3 racing um you know i, I think they've got to step up because otherwise you could see porsche sweeping these races and getting some really some more really big wins in the next couple of years and I'll close by giving a shout out to Honda because uh, they finished as the highest non-German manufacturer in the race. Really didn't factor in in terms of being a threat for the win, but the the official Honda entry, Honda Team Motul, uh, Renger van der Zanda, as well as Bertrand Baguette and Mario Farnbacher uh, put in a, a really good good effort. I think the team did a nice job. It's a smaller operation, uh, only two NSXs in in the field, and. Uh, they were able to to really impress, I thought. So a lot of great stuff to take away. For me, it was a, a first uh, total 24 hours of spa experience, my first time to spa, just blown away by the event. I've been lucky to cover races at Le Mans, Daytona, Sebring, and Indianapolis, and, and I put this right there with, with, with the best of the best. It was really, really cool and uh, was just blown away by the circuit as well. I, I would like to, to come back and see a full 24 hours of racing at some point without the red flag, but uh, just had a great time. Big thanks to the SRO TV folks as well for having me involved, and glad I could uh, help out with the 365 coverage a little bit from time to time too. So hope you enjoyed all the coverage. Obviously, there's a whole lot more to be said about this race with it being a 24-hour race don't have the time to do it here. You can find the full results, lots of reaction stories at SportsCar 365. We'll have a bunch of news that came out of this weekend that will be on the website in the coming week to weeks. I think 20-plus stories that are sitting in the system at the moment waiting to be published as uh, as of recording right now. So lots of good stuff coming for you guys a little bit later on. So keep checking the website for the latest. Let's get a break in here, and when we come back, we've got news to get to. Much of it coming from this weekend here in Belgium. That's next. Hey, this is Colin Brown, and you're listening to Sports Car 365's Double Stint Podcast. Back on Double Stint, time for the news of the week, and we'll start with some uh, some fascinating stuff that comes out of the SRO Motorsports um, um, press conference that happens every year at Spa. This is the the event in which the motorsports world really is focused on 
SRO Racing, and uh, they, they make sure they make use of that spotlight, unveiling all kinds of news and things like schedules. So uh, we'll start with Dan. Your thoughts about what was announced, things that stood out to you, whether it be schedules, whether it be different regulations, uh, uh, various things that, that came out from the, the lengthy press conference on Friday. Well, I've got a lot of different things to choose from. I mean, there were, there were so many announcements that, that we could potentially talk about. I think one of the big ones, though, was the, the change of the North American round of the Intercontinental GT Challenge powered by Pirelli, uh, the round at WeatherTech Raceway Laguna Seca, the California Eight Hours, which has been held for the last three years, won't return. Uh, that's going to be replaced by a round at Indianapolis, uh, the motor speedway itself on the road course, uh, which has seen IndyCar and MotoGP and, and Formula One in a slightly different configuration all in previous years, and it's going to add uh, this this burgeoning GT3 series to its uh, to its history. And it's, it's an interesting move. I mean. We know that the American round, the California round of the IGTC was probably the hardest one to activate and it was the one that um, never really attracted the same kind of grids as the other races. Um, so it's a, it's a bold move, I think, from SRO to move it a bit further inland uh, over to Indy uh, to, to a circuit that obviously doesn't host much uh, much in the way of racing outside of IndyCar and NASCAR, really. Um but I, th- I think that's part of the reason why it was done. Uh, Stefan Rattel afterwards said that it was important to have an IGTC round, uh, or i.e. an SRO organised round, not on a circuit that already races in IMSA. He really wants to distinguish this series from other series and uh, make people think, oh yeah, there's, there's, a, there's an endurance race at Indianapolis that's IGTC and, and, it, and there's, so there's no confusion with with other series so you know I, I get that uh, perspective it's going to be interesting to see how it's going to be activated um, not sure what the crowd will be like all sorts of things to think about there but yeah certainly a, a new direction for um, SRO racing in, in North America and seems like Rattel is hoping to sort of create a bit of a 24 hours of spa style event over in the state so he he's backing the region he's, he's backing it as part of his intercontinental plan so yeah that's going to be an interesting one how do you think that one's going to play out that is the question isn't it and I would say it received mixed reviews from the people that I spoke to within the industry here personally uh, maybe a bit from a, a, a selfish side of things, I'm pretty excited about it because it means I can commute from home, which is perfectly fine by me. Plus, I, I love uh, showing off my home city to as many people as I can, and any excuse to spend time at the Speedway, I'm willing to take up. But uh, I do think there will be challenges, the main challenge being what kind of crowd can you draw, even if it is a decent crowd, something like twenty, thirty thousand 30,000 people is going to look minuscule at Indianapolis. That's just the nature of things. Uh, and I think that even that would be a, uh, an optimistic estimation of what the crowd might be. There's a few hurdles involved, including the fact that it's during the uh, NFL season, and there's a chance that it could be going up against a, a Colts game in Indianapolis, which means 60-some thousand sports fans are already committed uh, on that particular day. So that that's going to be difficult. I think the date, while much better than what Laguna could offer. And frankly, this decision came as much down to the date as anything else at Laguna. The fact that they could only offer them a date in the spring was a non-starter for the SRO, period, because you could not get North American teams to participate in the middle of their seasons. And there's another hinge to this, which I'll get to in a moment, that should ensure more North American teams are involved than what we saw at Laguna this year. But the, the other problem 
with the date that they're given at Indianapolis, in addition to the fact that going up against football in America, college or pro, is is a tough ask for just about any sport, let alone a championship that just is not well known in the States at this point in the Intercontinental GT Challenge, um, you also are going one week before Petit Le Mans, and that means many of the same GT3 teams that you're hoping to draw to an event like this have a big race, the championship deciding race the next weekend. So that would take a large investment of time and resources away from their main efforts if you're going to try and draw an IMSA team to Indy. Now, I expect one or two will take up the challenge, in part because it's Indianapolis and uh, in part because a lot of these teams do have spare cars or and can afford to do these kinds of things, but it will be a challenge, and, and I wouldn't expect more than a couple to make the trip primarily because of that date. Uh, but I do think one thing that is fascinating about this move is the fact that it's going to count as the final race of the SRO uh, Blancpain GT World Challenge America season. So this is an endurance race now that goes into the otherwise sprint x i suppose format the 90 minute races that we see throughout the rest of the season i do not know how well this is going to be received by the teams Uh, we were told by greg gill the series president and ceo that there were teams asking to run enduros but i don't know how many and uh, i'm going to be very curious to get to the paddock at watkins Glen and try and get a sense for the enthusiasm of, uh, of running a lengthy race like this because of the costs involved and, and various other elements to it. But what this does do is ensure a North American presence because if you're going to be running for a championship, you must be in this race. So uh, there, there's a lot to it. I'm curious to see how it plays out. And generally speaking, I'm positive, but without a doubt, there are pitfalls to avoid. Absolutely, Ryan. It's it's a brave decision, I think, to to move to the first ever points-paying endurance race for a series that has predominantly been for sprint competitors, and and that's the format that has that has made this type of racing so successful. This series, um, as you said, a lot of things that teams will need to consider will need to add um, third drivers. Do you, do you, do you have to add extra drivers to your car and negotiate con- single race contracts or all sorts of things like that um all i can hope is that the during the igtc race uh that the blancpain gt world challenge america series is also promoted um in in an equal sense that that we that fans also get a good idea of what is happening in the sro america race as well as the igtc race i know that can be quite difficult with as we see at spa with blancpain and igtc mixed together but i hope there can be some kind of differentiation so that the Blancpain GT World Challenge America series gets the gets the promotion it needs for its final race because the final race should be a big deal it should be a big thing for the series I don't really want that to get overshadowed by other things that might be happening so yeah interesting we'll, we'll see how it plays out and we'll see um, what the team's reaction to it is in the coming races I'm sure we'll be talking to them there we also learned a lot about schedules for various series for the upcoming season and rather than list them all out here i would just direct you back to the website we have a lot there we can finally confirm by the way that the series finale for the 2019 sro america season will happen on the road course at las vegas the worst kept secret maybe of all time has finally become not a secret in even the slightest sense anymore so we're all celebrating that news um it also comes in conjunction with uh, the rumored uh, uh presence of the SRO Global Banquet in Las Vegas following that event. That's uh, something that clearly Stefan Rattel had been 
aiming for for quite some time. So uh, we did get that information out there. But again, a lot on the schedules can be found on the site. Another big thing to come out of the weekend. First, we saw the first ever GT2 race. It was an all Porsche race, uh, of course, with the, the new Porsche GT2 plus the, the 935 Club Sport variant. Um, I'm probably getting the name wrong, but I think you know what I'm talking about, and that's the important thing. There were, what were there, 15 cars uh, on the grid, 12 of the new GT2 cars and three of the the long tail varieties, and turned out to be some decent racing there. But more importantly, Jake, we did get a little bit more information about what's to come, what the SRO has planned for the GT2 platform, and what manufacturers might have in mind. So can you give us a, a rundown of what we learned? We've we've learned quite a bit more about the sort of a plan for rolling out GT2 proper next year. Um, the, the, you know, the platform itself was announced this time 12 months ago at the press conference in Spa. Um, effectively, it's going to be launched with uh, three different GT Sports Club series on different continents. Um, so they're going to bring GT2 into the existing long-run GT Sports Club series in Europe, um, which is currently for bronze GT3 drivers and GT3 cars. Um, and they're going to be planned to launch GT2 Sports Club Series in Asia and North America as supports to the Blancpain GT World Challenge Series on those continents. Um, I think the Asian and North American Series aren't 100% set in stone. I would I would expect maybe we'll see changes there, um, especially on the Asian front, because it's a free race calendar over about eight months. So that doesn't look um, particularly enticing at the moment, I don't think. But... The European one, I'm, I'm sure, will we'll go ahead as planned, um, especially combining the grids with GT3. So we'll get a decent grid for Sports Club in Europe. Um, but also, as, as we already knew, uh, the first multi-manufacturer GT2 race will be in the Sports Club race at Barcelona at the end of September this year. Um, so it's, this is a bit of a precursor to what we can expect more of next year. As far as manufacturers are concerned, um, we will find the find out a third GT2 manufacturer at that Barcelona event at the end of September. Um, lots of rumours who that might be. There's a couple of couple of uh, names being thrown around the paddock. And then Stefan Rattel says we can expect to find out three more manufacturers throughout the course of next year. So that by the end of 2020, we should have six different brands signed up for GT2, which I think is more than enough to put on a lot of good, a lot of good racing and have an exciting category there. So watch this space for more information about GT2. Finally, in the news section, let's wrap up by talking a little bit of WEC here because it was a busy week for Dan. He started the week in Barcelona covering the prologue. There were... I guess a few storylines to come away from that. Frankly, it the the event was overshadowed in large part by the fact that uh, we had Spa coming up, and it just it, it, the timing of the whole thing seems a little odd. It's taking getting used to with the with the strain the switch to the winter calendar. Um, so we'll start with with your thoughts overall. Um, LMP1 seemed better. That's good. There weren't as many GT cars. That's that's not so good, and then there's not a lot of diversity in LMP2, which is probably not so good. That was my takeaway from the whole thing. How about you, Dan? Uh, a pretty accurate summary, to, to be honest, Ryan. No. Um, it, it, I, I think the the biggest issue here with the WEC prologue was was the timing. Um, we saw uh, for the, for the final session at least, which took place on. 
Tuesday afternoon, um, almost overlapping really with, well, definitely overlapping with people's travel plans for Spa. Um, several teams that were taking part in both events, packing up and and leaving with ha- having done maybe even only four hours of running. Um, so you're looking at TF Sport, which was focusing its efforts on its GT3 Aston, which ended up winning Pro-Am at Spa, and AF Corsa, which had um, what they said were over half of the people going from the prologue to spa to work there so um clearly that there was a there was a clash of interests on that front but also the 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 date doesn't really work from a season perspective in in my opinion i mean we've just finished le mans it didn't seem like it was uh, a sort of first day back at school at all it 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 was it it was sort of because we got the first race in september and we've just finished le mans which was in in mid-june um it's difficult for teams to get any kind of development work done um, Toyota has managed to do so, but their technical director Pascal Vasselon said that they started work on this new on the new aero kit back in January, um, effectively to give their team something to do in the long caps between races. But it's required a lot of forward planning, um, and it's it's muddled people. I think on on contracts, driver contracts especially, we have so many entries on the entry list that are still TBA. Um, with Silverstone fast approaching and things just being finalised um, in, in, in the last few weeks of the season. And, and obviously things like car deals, tyre deals, United Autosport switching chassis, teams deciding tyres short notice on the prologue weekend. Uh, the, the, there was a real sense of hurry, which I think could be avoided if we move the prologue date later in the year, perhaps attach it to the start of the first WEC race of the season, which is what happens in ELMS. Um, and it's what, something that Gerard Neveu, the, the CEO of the, the WEC, um, told Sportscar 365 at the prologue, is that we can maybe do something like this to free up a bit of an off-season, actually have an off-season, give teams a time to regroup and decide what they're going to do, uh, and probably save a bit of money as well. Um, what that might mean for the future i mean can we hold a prologue at silverstone where the weather conditions are variable who knows that's something to be decided but yeah certainly it was a, it was a strange date to have as you said in terms of performances at barcelona you can't really read too much into it because we don't race there um but really impressive from the non-hybrid lmp1 teams um Toyota knew that Rebellion would be closer. There's a 14 kilogram weight increase on the Toyotas that effectively means they are heavier than any point during the 2018-19 super season. Um, That contributed to the gap coming down to about 0.2 seconds between the fastest Rebellion and, and the fastest overall lap from Toyota really good on that front uh, bringing the gap down depends what the teams are running in terms of setup but encouraging uh, but Ginetta really really good performance from the Ginetta guys um, receiving logistical help from Algarve Pro Racing um, which was at the LMS race the weekend before um, they managed to get to around half a second of the Toyota just think where that Ginetta program was 12 months ago just over 12 months ago struggling to get out of the garage um let alone t- setting any competitive times. And they brought some great drivers over. They had a couple of the old SMP guys, Steph Sarazan and Igor Rudjev, Formula 2 racer, Luca Giotto. Um, so a lot of people, we understand, interested in seats over at Ginetta and uh, watch this space. They certainly seem keen on having two cars for the full season, even a third at Le Mans they're hoping for. Um, so, yeah, that's certainly something to look out for. But, yeah, I, I, I want to be encouraged by LMP1. We've got a success handicap system coming in. It's going to provide, unlike the EOT, which we had last season, it's actually going to penalise the cars that do well, whereas the EOT was simply about raising the performance of the non-hybrids um, whilst maybe giving Toyota some cutbacks. But it really was, it, it was a different way of narrowing the gap. This will... Um, 
in Toyota's opinion, create clear opportunities for non-hybrid race wins. So let's be optimistic going into the season. Let's, let's see what happens. The prologue, there were some good times there. Shame we don't have SMP, but let's, uh, let's go in with a, with a good feeling. I, I think we can certainly um, look forward to some closer battles in the LMP1 pack this season. Well put. So with that, let's ramp up the news here. There's a lot more on all of those stories, plus plenty of other news we don't have time for on the show at sportscar365.com. Up next, Kevin Estra will join us to talk about the big win with GPX Racing at Spa, what went into it, the strategy, when did he think they might actually be able to win the thing in what was a topsy-turvy race weekend for him and the team. We'll talk to him about that and more next on Double Stint. Hi, I'm Billy Johnson, and you're listening to Sports Car 365's Double Stint Podcast. Kevin Estra, kind enough to join us on the Double Stint Podcast here in the Media Center at Spa, just, uh, well, hours after a big victory for you and for the, the GPX racing team here at the Total 24 Hours of Spa. A remarkable race for a lot of reasons. What are you going to remember most about uh, the, the 2019 Spa 24? Uh, to be honest, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be hard to pick up a moment. Uh, for sure, my first stint was, was good. The car was mega. Uh, we had not a perfect qualifying, but we we were, we were good and uh, we had the pace in the first in to uh, to come back to come to the front um, on the wet and then on the dry uh, then for sure we remember uh, just before the red flag because it was uh, it was really really hard uh, dangerous and, and really tough not to make a mistake and a bit of luck or a lot of luck to be honest and maybe the last uh, the last second last stint when I took the car on slicks on, on damp conditions and trying to, to pass both cars for the lead which I which I achieved so uh, that's maybe three moments of, of this race but uh, there are plenty of moments which I probably forgot and, and will uh, remember maybe next week It seemed like there were many close calls the television cameras picked up some of them but was this as on the edge of a race as, as you've had in your career? Yeah I think so because Spa is, uh, is very challenging um, 72, 73 cars on, on track same category very challenging uh, and then the conditions you know it's it's for sure one of the hardest race or maybe the hardest race mentally um, not so physically because to be honest the Porsche Porsche made a, a mega job on the cockpit and, and I feel still quite fresh compared to the old car is a big difference but uh, mentally it was a tough one um, you compare often Spa and, and Nürburgring and to be honest it's very very close uh, apart that here to to make every pass you have to break late and, and kind of throw it in there while on Nürburgring you have some slow cars letting you by here nobody lets you by it's the fight uh, even if they are 10 laps down so um, yeah, it's a special race. It's a very tough one. So many of the drivers before the race said this this race is really unforgiving. If you make a mistake, it's so difficult to claw back. At what point during this race did you think that you could overcome the mistake and the penalty early in the race? To be honest, I think it was just after the the five minutes, uh, you know, mandatory pit stop. Because uh, I think we gambled a bit. I, I saw a big crash in Blanchimont, and uh, I was, it was two, two laps uh, into my stint. And I said, "Pit, pit, pit, pit!" And uh, I went already uh, pit, and we pitted. And after 10 seconds, I crossed the pit entry line, and after 10 seconds, was full Cusiello. And this brought us back right there. Uh, and then was a tremendous uh, rain, and uh, and then red flag, and then we were in the contention. We 
run the same strategy than uh, than the guys in front and uh, same laps and we have done the um, the pit stop so that was i think that was the key to really come back and uh, and fight for for the victory just a couple more questions and we'll let you go this deal to run in this race with this team came together rather late a lot of new faces around you familiar faces in the driving lineup but from the team perspective at least uh, how unknown of the situation was this when you stepped in yeah a lot because to be honest we both uh, three of us we drove uh, we drove the GT3 this year but only on the Nürburgring only on the Nordschleife with Michelin confidential tires and completely different setup we've never driven this car on Pirelli in testing never uh, new team new engineer coming just for one test day because they had a Portimao uh, event in the same weekend than the test the official test day uh, so it was it was tough really uh, they put a lot of effort we had a, a proper debrief after the, the test day and um, and they did everything you know what, what we asked for and and maybe more or for sure more and uh, and they prepared the car perfectly and we that we had one mistake in the race but i think it's uh, when you look at how many mistakes has been done it's uh, it's very um, yeah it, it's normal or it's normal would have been better not to do but uh, it's acceptable for for a new team but uh, yeah it was a late call and and really happy the atmosphere was mega and sometimes you need this to uh, you know come back and and be strong and maybe you know have fun as much as you're fast lastly now you turn your attention to the wec you've had the prologue what's your level of confidence especially coming off such a strong season in the super season yeah it's good uh, this race is is a part because it's another team it's a different team different car but uh, we had a group prologue we have a new car we are quite confident that we we made some good steps on the car uh, but the competition for sure did also some steps but uh, we are world champions so we just uh, we proved last year that we were good enough and we'll try to be better this year so we are we are quite confident congratulations thanks thank for you. the time thank you hey i'm patrick long and you're listening to sports card 365's double stint podcast Back on Double Stint, time to get to listener questions as we say thanks as well to Kevin for joining us post-race. He was uh, a busy guy, to say the least. A lot of uh, a lot of journalists wanted to talk to him for obvious reasons, and uh, it, was, it was good to see the success and uh, really do appreciate him stepping aside to spend five or six minutes with us and hope you guys enjoyed the interview. Let's start here in the final segment by tackling our listener question this week. Actually, before we get to the new one that came in, just wanted to let uh, Marvtastic Race in know that, well, since we were all over here in Europe, didn't have a chance to check on the core Mustang uh, that you asked us about last week, we will do that, and I'll get to you at a certain point uh, down the road once I have a chance to actually check in with them. So we haven't forgotten you. We will try and get an answer to that question for a future show. But this one came in from Edgar Sanchez, who wants to know, Will we perhaps ever see the C7 GT3 Corvettes race again in the U.S.? What are the chances we see a C8 GT3 either from Callaway or Pratt & Miller? To the C7, I would say 99% no. And that's unfortunate because it was a really cool car. It was pretty impressive given the turmoil that surrounded that Callaway program for the one and a half weekends effectively that they were they were on the grid in what was then Pirelli World Challenge. I will say that that program 
left some burned bridges in its wake, and it would be a real challenge for them to to try and break back in. Certainly, we know it's not going to happen in IMSA. GM has said that they don't want Corvettes racing against Corvettes, even if they're not in the same class, and um, it would detract potentially from the from the factory efforts. So we can count that out. But as far as SRO America is concerned. I'd say it's pretty unlikely. Now, I can say that the Callaway folks have been around and asking people. I hear this pretty regularly that, yep, they're, you know, I got a phone call asking if I was available to do this, this, and this, but it, it, it seems to be still at the very formative stages, and I wouldn't count on ever seeing that materialize, especially as that car ages. It's, it's just going to be less and less viable. So I, I don't expect we'll see the C7 GT3 in the U.S. again, which, as I said, is too bad, at least outside of maybe Creventic. That, I suppose, is a possibility. I think we did see it race there one time a couple of years ago in the, the Coda round of the 24-hour series. As for a Corvette C8 GT3, we had a story a few weeks ago from Doug Feehan, the Corvette racing program manager about gt convergence and he was full-throated in in his um opinion he was definitely in favor of that whether or not that's going to happen especially with with in time to incorporate a c8 uh that i think is the bigger question there so there's a lot of moving parts and pieces i think it depends on on a gt convergence between gte and gt3 if we'd ever see a, a corvette gt3 I, I, I can't imagine a standalone Corvette GT3 even done by the Callaway operation. I, I just don't see that as, as, as something that would be likely unless it's being done by Pratt & Miller and GM more centrally. And again, I think that probably waits to happen until there is some kind of convergence between the two platforms. Just my thought based on what I've heard and what I know. Hopefully that answers your question. I'm sure it's not the answer you were looking for because uh, I think we'd all like to see that Uh, Corvette racing in GT3 once again, but um, I I don't think it's likely to happen in the U.S. anytime soon. Let's wrap up the show this week by looking ahead to Road America. As far as the racing itself, we know that uh, the Mazda has had some BOP adjustments after its recent run of really strong performances. We'll see how that affects things. You can find all the BOP changes with our stories at the website, but uh, Road America is a classic circuit. Should be a ton of fun. Looking forward to following the coverage along on SportsCar 365 in the week ahead. That's it for us on the show this week. We'd love to hear from you for next week's show. You can leave a comment in the comment section or use the hashtag AskDoubleStint to uh, get your question on the next show. And uh, we look forward to talking to you then. That's it for us this week. Thanks for tuning in. Talk to you next week with our next edition of Double Stint.